couple weeks ago, Jessica and I had the privilege of having one of our young couples over for dinner. I must say that the dinner was awesome. I cooked homemade clam chowder and bread bowls, and if you know me, I'm not much of a cook. But I did a little Googling, a little researching, and I thought the meal turned out great. But aside from the supper, the conversation that we had sitting around the dinner table was blessed. It was awesome. It actually really ministered to me and got me thinking about some, some cool stuff. As we were talking, discussing you know, life and what the Lord was doing in each of our lives, and as we were talking about the church and uh, what the Lord was doing here at Calvary 316, an interesting topic emerged. When I was asked what I thought about one of the larger, quote, seeker-friendly churches moving into our area. Now, for starters, and this is kind of an important disclaimer for everything else we're going to discuss, when it comes to any church moving into the greater Winder, Bethlehem, Auburn area, area, I say more the merrier. The harvest is great enough for all of us. And yet, when pressed by this young man about the potential impact this particular church might have on our community, my answer surprised even myself. Honestly, I said, I don't really see there being any impact on what we're trying to accomplish here at Calvary 316, mainly because the people who would find that type of church appealing aren't going to attend our church anyway. Now, I know that that's kind of a controversial statement, that that kind of cuts in some regard. But over the last three years of pastoring Calvary 316, I've come to an important realization. And that is that our brand of Christianity and our particular ministry philosophy simply isn't going to appeal to everyone. And you know what? I think that's scriptural. As we look this morning at a month-long season of ministry that the Apostle Paul has in the town of Thessalonica, we're going to see that not only is this a reality scripturally, you're not going to appeal to everyone, but in the long run, it's not actually a bad thing. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now we're in the midst of Paul's second missionary journey, and as we often do, we're going to put up some maps to illustrate the motion of the text. Three guys, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They leave Philippi, and the way that the text is structured, their destination is Thessalonica. It was about 100 miles away. Now, Luke gives us kind of the flow of which uh, they make their journey. Now, keep in mind, Luke is not with uh, these three men. They, Luke was left behind in Philippi. And yet we see that it's about 32 miles as they leave Philippi to Amphipolis, another 32 miles from Amphipolis to Apollonia, and then 36 miles from Apollonia to Thessalonica. And it would seem that upon entering Thessalonica, Paul gets back to his typical pattern of outreach. By first, we're told, visiting the synagogue of the Jews. He didn't do this in Philippi. There wasn't enough Jewish residents in the city to constitute a synagogue being established, which is why he met with some of the, the ladies who had gathered by the river for worship. But here in Thessalonica, there's a greater Jew Jewish population. Paul gets back to his pattern. Verse two, as his custom was, Paul went in. And for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, 
saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. These three verses summarize for us Paul's activities that cover a month, three weeks, or three Sabbaths. And it's important to point out from the text that Paul's audience here, the audience he's seeking to reach in Thessalonica, included both religious Jews as well as devout Greeks. These were Gentile proselytes. This detail is significant. For Paul's audience may have, what, may have well come straight out of the Bible Belt. The group that he's seeking to win over for Christ was biblically knowledgeable. They were spiritually inclined. But, and here's the kicker, their entire religious structure was based on a faulty understanding as to the nature of salvation itself. They were religious, they were spiritual, but they were lost. They believed that a person could be saved through intellectual belief. They thought they were saved because of family heritage, by their good deeds. <laughs> belief, I believe in God. Heritage, I was born into a religious faith and works. I'm saved because I'm a good person. Sounds like a typical Southerner to me, doesn't it? Also, note Paul's specific goal in reaching, like how he goes about reaching this religiously inclined Bible Belt Southernish crowd. We're told that in the desire to convince these religiously minded Thessalonians, he presented two things. His goal is to present the Christ as one who had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and two, this Jesus whom he preached, and this word preach literally means like to herald, to proclaim, was the Christ. So his goal is twofold. Convince them that the Christ, their long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, had to die and be resurrected, and that Jesus was this man. Once again, this detail is also important. For while every legitimate church shares this fundamental objective, right? I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find a church that didn't care about seeing the lost come into a saving faith, right? We all share that ambition to see people that are on the way to hell repent and be redeemed and be set free. But here's the thing. While every church might share that goal, that aim, not every church agrees with the most effective way to accomplish that particular goal. For example, most of the largest churches in the greater Atlanta area employ what's known as a seeker-friendly model when it comes to winning the lost for Christ. You might have also heard these ministries tout themselves as being, quote, church for the unchurched, which is kind of historically relevant for it's a rather new development within Christianity, the idea of church being for the unchurched. In his book, The Priority of Biblical Preaching, Stephen Lawson summed up this ministry approach by commenting, quote, a new way of doing church is emerging. In this radical paradigm shift, exposition is being replaced with entertainment, preaching with performances, doctrine with drama, and theology with theatrics. The pulpit, once the focal point of the church, is now being overshadowed by a variety of church growth techniques 
Everything from trendy worship styles to glitzy presentations to vaudeville-like pageantries. And seeking to capture the upper hand in church growth, a new wave of pastors is reinventing the church and repackaging the gospel into a product to be sold to consumers. Whatever reportedly works in one church is now being franchised out into various markets. And discussing how he seeks to move a diverse group of people into a common direction, Andy Stanley, pastor of North Point Community Church, you might have seen him on television, he recently explained, and we put a link at c316.tv so you can look at it yourself, you can watch the video, but he recently explained why his ministry does not emphasize the teaching of the Bible during their Sunday services. Quote, it is often effective to leverage common experiences and emotions without assuming a common belief system. We don't begin with theology and beliefs. We begin with what we have in common, fears, joy, challenges, and a need for love. And that draws people in. We want to move people physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. We want to take them from where they are to the place where we think God wants them to be. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't question Andy Stanley's desire to win the loss for Christ. I don't. I think he's very sincere in that desire to see the lost come into saving faith. And yet, the fundamental problem with this approach is that A, you'd be hard-pressed to find an example where the church existed for such a purpose, and two, as a method of evangelism, this particular approach, this model, is totally, completely unbiblical. Look again at our text, the example of Paul. Here he is, and he's doing what? He's trying to reach a group of religious people. We'll just say that they're Southerners. His purpose is that they might recognize Jesus as being the basis of their salvation and not religious beliefs, heritage, or works. We're all on the same page. But look at how he goes about doing it. He uses scripture. As with Jesus and the precedent you will find in the book of Acts, the Bible was Paul's fundamental basis for evangelistic outreach. And according to our text, there were three ways that Paul used scripture to try to reach these Thessalonians. Three ways he used scripture in his evangelistic approach. First, note, Paul used scripture to, quote, reason with them. In the Greek, this word reasoned, it literally means to mingle thought with thought. I like the word. It's actually uh, where we get our English word dialogue. Understand, Paul, he's not preaching at them. He's not standing on the street corner railing against them. Rather, he's gone into their midst and he's simply having a conversation about scripture. You might call it conversational evangelism. It should also be pointed out that Paul, from the text, he's not arguing with them, nor is he debating them. Instead, we can reason he's having a sharp conversation 
but a cordial one seeking to demonstrate Christ. And check it out. He's seeking to demonstrate Christ in both the points that he makes as well as in the way he makes those points. I think Christians overlook that reality sometimes. It's not just about revealing Christ in your argument. It's about revealing Christ in the way you make your argument. Tragically, as soon as we allow a conversation concerning God to devolve into a contentious argument, as many of us can attest from experience, any hope of winning that person to Christ is dwarfed when intellectual pride, stubbornness kick in. I'm now more concerned with winning the argument versus winning the person. It's been said those who abuse apologetics, they may successfully win the argument, but they lose the soul in the process. So here's Paul in this synagogue for three Sabbaths, and he's reasoning with them. He's having this conversation. We're also told that Paul used scripture to, quote, explain to them. In the Greek, this word explaining, it would be better translated, and if you have the old King James, you'll find it translated as such, as opening. A more contemporary word would be enlightening. So he uses scripture to open to them or to enlighten them, which is a really interesting word because you'll find this word associated a lot with Jesus' ministry and recounting their experiences with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Two disciples in Luke 24, verse 32, recounting their experiences, they said this. They said, did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road? while he opened, same word, the scriptures to us. A few verses later, verse 45 of Luke 24, Jesus will appear to the 11 remaining apostles, and we're told that Jesus' purpose is to open their understanding that what? They might comprehend or understand the scriptures. Jesus was all about explaining God's word to people, which is also significant. Because here we find Paul. He's not trying to be contentious. He's not trying to argue. He's not trying to have some holy roller debate. He's just conversational evangelism, opening up the word, talking about scripture, presenting questions, receiving answers, going back and forth. And in the process, using the Bible, he begins to, to open their understanding. No, not using his arguments or his personal opinions but pointing to a larger authority beyond himself, God's word. I think that's important. It wasn't about his opinion about the scripture. It wasn't about his perspective on the scripture. Paul pointed to scripture as the truth, God's word, a larger authority that should weigh such matters. Paul's evangelistic ministry, it's clear that it emphasized the teaching or opening of God's word and why was this important? Why did Paul emphasize this? Because scripture is the most effective way to reveal Jesus. In John chapter one, we're told that in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And a few verses later, we're told that this word became flesh and dwelt among us. So if you want to know Jesus, get to know his word. That's how he defines himself. Well, thirdly, we see that Paul used scripture to do what? To demonstrate for them. In the Greek, this word demonstrating literally means to place beside. 
It indicates that Paul's scriptural arguments presented persuasive evidence to substantiate his position that the Christ had to suffer and die and that Jesus was the Christ. I hope you realize that your Christian faith is a reasonable faith. As Christians, we don't believe in the absence of evidence. We believe because there is enough evidence to make our beliefs reasonable. I'll say that again. As Christians, we don't believe in the absence of evidence. We believe because there is enough evidence to make our beliefs reasonable. Hebrews 11 verse 1 even goes so far as define our faith as the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. A real faith has substance, and it has evidence. And as Paul is presenting his arguments, he's doing this. He's not believing these things blindly. He's believing them because there's evidence in Scripture to say so. Yes, the Christ had to suffer. Yes, the Christ had to die. But yes, Scripture tells me that the Christ would be resurrected. And this Jesus is that man, and let me tell you why. Not because I believe, but because I've seen it. I've met him. There's evidence that makes it tangible. For three weeks, Paul gathers with these Thessalonians where he uses scripture to reason, explain, and demonstrate what? That Jesus was actually the long-awaited savior of the world, which for our purposes this morning, is fascinating because Paul's methodology for reaching this lost but religious culture, the one we happen to live in, runs completely counterintuitive to the modern seeker-friendly approach. Instead of, quote, leveraging common experiences and emotions without assuming a common belief system or seeking to draw in his audience By appealing to common fears and joys, challenges, and the need for love, what does Paul do? Paul specifically focuses on Christian theology and biblical doctrine, believing that by first correcting their misguided belief system, he would lay the framework by which they would reject their religious basis for salvation and accept Jesus. It's been said the best way to confront a lie is to provide the truth. While the text is clear, Paul's arguments were hard to discredit. You know, he presents evidence. We do see a mixed reaction, don't we? We're told that only some of the Jews were persuaded, and a great multitude of the Greeks joined Paul and Silas, which leads to another important point we can't overlook. Teaching the Bible, using the Bible as your method of evangelism, in order to reach a religious culture, what did it do? It actually polarized Paul's audience. The text is clear. While a great multitude of the Greeks joined, the way the verse is structured presents the inescapable reality that a great multitude of the Jews chose not to join. Understand, a Bible-centric, a Bible-teaching ministry, this model will not appeal to everyone. Paul used it. Did it appeal to everyone? No, it didn't. As a matter of fact, in this instance, the word of God only served to parse the crowd, revealing each group's inner intentions. 
based upon their reaction to God's word, the Greeks were seen to be genuine seekers, with the Jews being nothing more than religious pretenders. You see, this is this reality is one of the main reasons seeker-friendly churches avoid teaching the Bible. As we see illustrated in this passage, teaching the Bible yields one of two reactions, right? It either forces a person out of their religious comfort or it forces that person out of your church. Hebrews 4 verses 12 describes the word of God as living and powerful, but also as being sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The reason this is the case is that the Bible's message, the reason it divides, the reason it spawns one of two reactions, leaving behind my religious fundamentalism or leaving the church, why it does this is that the Bible's message for the seeker The Bible's message for the unchurched is brutally honest. The Bible's clear, right? Apart from a saving relationship with Jesus, you're lost in your sins, alienated from God, and condemned to hell as a consequence. The Bible, the Bible doesn't ease people in. It calls people out. The Bible doesn't placate to your situation. It It calls you to account. The Bible condemns both religious moralism and worldly relativism alike. Sure, the Bible tells the seeker, God loves you just the way that you are. But the Bible is radically honest that his plan is not to leave you that way. God's desire is that you repent of your rebellious lifestyle, that you die to whatever it is you presently are, and allow him to transform you more into the image and likeness of his son, Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. The reality. The Bible does not present a populist message. It can't be packaged for the masses because the truth, it's offensive. The truth is divisive. A seeker either responds and accepts Jesus or they get upset, call you names, and leave. Which is why the seeker-friendly model avoids truth in order to successfully appeal to a larger audience. Let me share with you what is written. The church that I'm not going to name, but was the subject of our conversation. Let me read from you what they have listed on their website under the what to expect section Um, of of their church. If If you're going to visit, this is what you can expect. Quote, we believe God calls us to pursue him just as we are, inside and out. So we nurture a casual, fun, and inviting atmosphere. As our guest, you can check out our services without intrusion and begin your spiritual journey at your own pace. No pressure, just encouragement. Sounds nice. Matter of fact, it sounds like it might have come straight off of a brochure for a Dr. Phil summer camp. But the reality, this this idea that you can pursue God just as you are, that's not true. By definition, you cannot pursue God unless you first repent. 
You're going the other direction, opposite of where God is. In order to pursue God, to even start a journey, you have to stop and about face and accept that you are on the path to hell. This is not seeker-friendly. It lulls the seeker into a false self-confidence. And yet, while these churches find themselves overflowing on Sunday morning, I'm convinced that there is an unintended consequence to this particular ministry model. In the South, there is a huge segment of the population who want church to satisfy a compulsion to feel spiritual without the actual challenge to be spiritual. I say that as a lifelong Southerner. Born and raised, I'm not a transplant. I've seen it firsthand. In the South, we have a culture of people who want to feel spiritual without being challenged to be spiritual because most Southerners are religiously inclined, exactly like these Thessalonians. But they're pagans in practice. We might call them Sunday Christians. Ever heard the term? They feel a compulsion to go to church because their parents went to church and their grandparents went to church and their great-grandparents went to church. It's what we do on Sunday mornings. We go to church and then we watch football. It's the South. Football on Saturday, church Sunday morning, we wrap up the rest of the weekend with more football. It's just how we roll. But here's the deal. Attending a church, if you're this person, that specifically targets unbelievers, <laughs> it has the perfect appeal. You see, church designed for the unchurch fosters the perfect environment for the lukewarm Christian, the Christian in name only, to thrive. This type of church because it doesn't teach the Bible. It allows a person to satisfy this cultural compulsion to feel like a good Christian. You know, I have stimulating worship and entertaining programming, helpful antidotes, service opportunities, etc. But this brand of ministry never forces that person to ever face weightier matters when it comes to what it means to be a Christian. Sermons that tackle topics like sin, repentance, judgment, what it means to be holy. Which leads me back to my opening. Because the primary focus of our Sunday service is not necessarily creating a comfortable environment for the unchurched, but is instead focused on the development of healthy Christians living genuine lives transformed by a real Jesus through the faithful teaching of God's word because he told us that's the way to go about doing that. The person who gravitates to the seeker church experience is simply, I don't think, going to find Calvary 316 all that appealing. Here's the reality. I'm not fearful of the seeker-friendly church moving in next door for one basic reason. We don't appeal to the same person at all. We don't even appeal to the same crowd. While the people who might gravitate their direction wouldn't find our pews comfortable for very long, it's also a reality that the people our church appeals to, that church doesn't appeal to because they see right through the charade. 
go out on a limb. I think it's why many of you might be here. And you know what? It's okay. I'm all right with that. Because biblically speaking, as a church, we're doing exactly what God has called us to do. If people come, if they don't, it doesn't matter. For we have to be faithful first to our pastor, and that's Jesus. What does the Bible do? The Bible divides a religious culture into those who are genuine Christ followers and those who are simply playing Christians. It took the synagogue of religious, spiritually inclined people. What did it do? Cut them right in half. A group of Greeks that found what Paul was saying dynamic, who were hungry for the word, who wanted something real, who was sick of religion, and a group of Jews who were more interested in playing a game. Honestly, I'm okay with the fact that our philosophy of biblical teaching yields such a result. And you know why I'm okay with it? I'm okay with it because Calvary 316 is not just being the church God has called us to be, but appeals is filled with like three groups of awesome people. As a matter of fact, because we teach the Bible, it kind of guarantees that the people who sit here and stay here fit into one of three camps, which, by the way, is exactly what the church was designed to do and who the church was designed to reach. First, we're filled with Christians serious about their faith. Now, don't get me wrong, you're not perfect. You're far from it. And that's part of the process. Knowing that I am, accepting that I am, but being serious about walking with Jesus. This person is looking for a church that teaches God's word because they know that God's word is the only way I can grow in godliness. It's the only way I can change. It's the only way I can be transformed. When you teach the Bible, you will attract serious believers, genuine Christians. Secondly, if you teach the Bible, you're also going to appeal to a crowd of, of, of Christians who have all but given up on church, which I like it. Like this is a person who's looking for a church that has kind of like said, screw all the bull, and we're going to do what the Bible just tells us to do. Forget about the parade. Like if I want to be entertained, Dave Matthews throws a much better concert. Like if, I, if, I, if entertainment is what I'm pursuing, and if the lights and the fog machines, whatever, I'll go see you too. And pay 60 bucks. Because I don't care how much money you have as a church, you're not going to compete with that. They're better at it. The world is better at entertaining in that regard. See, if you've gotten to the point where you're like, I just want something real, something genuine, I'm craving just something authentic. And you come to a church that teaches the Bible in a real way, it appeals to something. I know, because I've talked to some of you, that the reason you're here is that you've you had given up on church. And then you came here and you started sitting in one of these pews or tables or high tops and you started being fed in a way that you had never been fed before, being taught in a way you had never been taught before and a light bulb goes off. Wait a second. It's not the church that I had a problem with. It was that brand of church that I had a problem with. And this is hitting the sweet spot, man. And why? Why? because that's what it's designed to do. 
Now, I do think there's a third group of people that we appeal to. Once again, our ministry philosophy is that we believe that it's our job to equip Christians to go reach the world. Our job on a Sunday morning is not necessarily to reach the world. It's to reach you and equip you so that you can go reach the world. It's not church for the unchurched. We are very much church for the churched. We want Christians to be equipped because versus bringing them here or sending out an army, I think that's a better effective strategy. Now, I do think that we appeal to a seeker that's genuinely looking for truth. This person is repelled by a church playing games. They might not be a believer, but they recognize that using slick marketing techniques or candy to earn confidence is a game. They want a church experience that doesn't specifically emulate as its core mission, the world, or seeks to replicate the world. They're sick of the world. They want some place, some person, bold enough to speak truth and love. Ironically, the seeker church I was being asked about hails from what's known as the Willow Creek style of ministry. Now, what makes this ironic is that a few years ago, Willow Creek Community Church conducted a three-year study to, quote, find a way to measure spiritual growth and to see whether the church was accomplishing its mission of facilitating that growth. Now, what's interesting is that, to their credit, they produced this. It's a full report. It's a statistical analysis. Does the seeker-friendly model actually succeed in taking someone and developing their Christian relationship with God? Let me read what the report states. Quote, We learned that the most effective strategy for moving people forward in their journey of faith is biblical engagement. Our study revealed that churches that are successful in producing genuine spiritual growth in the lives of their people embed the Bible in everything. These churches breathe scripture. Hands down, no contest. When it comes to spiritual growth, nothing beats the Bible. I wish some of the churches in their own association would read their report. Verse 5. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, gathered together a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and, and attacked the house of Jason, sought to bring out them out to the people. So they assume Paul and Silas are staying in the house of Jason. But when they did not find them, they instead dragged out Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security or basically posted bail from Jason and the rest, they let them go. <laughs> I'm afraid one of the main reasons today's American church is failing our society, failing to influence our society, is that in our attempts to appeal to culture, we have forgotten that Jesus instituted the church to be set apart from culture. It's not appealing, it's holiness. That's Jesus' model. Now, don't get me wrong. 
There is a huge difference between a church seeking to appeal to culture as opposed to a church that's simply wanting to remain relevant. I'm very much a proponent of being relevant. Modernizing facilities, creating a contemporary aesthetic, providing and employing creative graphics, multimedia, to teach the Bible, even incorporating new styles of music to remain relevant within culture is not a bad thing. Heaven forbid the church ever appear antiquated. However, the problem is that all too often, in order to appeal to culture, the seeker-friendly church ends up appeasing culture. Appeasement is defined as the diplomatic policy of making concessions to an enemy power in order to avoid conflict. Instead of letting truth speak for itself by faithfully teaching the Bible in the pursuit of being friendly with the lost world around them, many pastors neuter the message itself, hoping to make the gospel, quote, more attractive, pleasing, interesting, enjoyable in the process. But here's the problem. A, the Bible doesn't work with that. So you kind of have to abandon it or cherry pick from it. But appeasement, by definition, fails to enact any type of lasting change. Like you'll never change society if you're an appeaser. And beyond that, history has no respect for appeasers. Isn't it true that there are few apologists for the way Neville Chamberlain approached the threat of Nazism? He's the ultimate appeaser. And we went into a world war as a result. You see, the church would be wise to remember that rebellion, not appeasement, is the only way to change culture. Now, I need to define that because if you're sitting there, you might be like, well, rebellion is the sin of witchcraft. So what are you saying, Zach? Let me explain. It's interesting. But whether or not you agree with their impact, you can't escape the reality that revolutionaries in history are remembered. Why? They are remembered specifically because their actions against the status quo was paramount in changing the status quo. What is Paul doing? <laughs> I think the case can be made that he's not really interested in appealing. He's far from an appeaser, isn't he? Paul was a revolutionary, publicly known, to look at it, be single-handedly, quote, turning the world upside down. Paul, he contrasted the lie with the truth. He pulled out a flashlight and shined that bright light into the eye of darkness. He was bold, <laughs> brazen, unafraid, tenacious. Paul spoke the word of God with conviction. And you know what? He was polarizing as a result. He divided churches. Paul's actions were directly responsible for dividing communities. He raged against the religious machine. He created enemies wherever he went. He ticked off the religious establishment. He was on a first-name basis with the local authorities. He spent nights in jail. Sounds like a revolutionary, doesn't it? 
Paul came, dropped truth bombs, and so impacted society that in every city he traveled, a church was planted and a violent mob was spawned. That's quite a reaction. In conclusion, life. Life is about submission and rebellion. Like the two ideas are central to the human spirit. What you rebel against, friend, determines what you'll live in submission to. If you rebel against God, you will live as a servant to this world, to the system, to this machine that grinds you up and spits you out. But if you submit to God, rebelling against this world is simply the natural and unavoidable outcome because people will be offended. Shock rocker Alice Cooper. Yeah, that crazy man. He actually became a Christian. I don't know if you know that. But he made this observation. He said, quote, drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy, which is interesting because I've never done that one. But being a Christian, that's a tough call. That's real rebellion. There are two things I want you to consider this morning as you, as you head home. First, figure out what you want to serve. The world or Jesus? And then once you make that determination, rebel against the other. If you're wanting to serve the world, then rebel against Jesus. I mean, you're going to anyway. Don't play a game, just be real. But if you're gonna serve Jesus, you might as well embrace the reality you're a revolutionary, that this world's not your home, that you're gonna be hated, that you're gonna take positions that's not gonna be popular, that you're gonna be called a homophobe, a bigot, even a racist, that a moral equivalency of you might be compared to ISIS. That's the truth. So figure out what you want to serve, the world or Jesus, who loved you enough to die for you. And then rebel against the other. And secondly, once you've figured out the first question, pick your church accordingly. Do you want to be a part of a church of rebels who unashamedly proclaim the truth of God's word without fear of reprisal? Or would you rather support appeasement because it allows you to feel good without the challenge to be holy? What kind of church do you want to foster what you're seeking? I don't know about you, but may the accusation be made of Calvary 316 that we are a church of rebels, that we're a church of revolutionaries, that we're a church known by the authorities, for the right reasons, by the way, but that we're a place that is known by the world around us to be filled with men and women who are turning the world upside down. Are you doing that? So, Father, 